Progressive Rugby League Hey everyone, you know I, John O'Duncan, was a scrawny little kid in the early 90s, I'm of that vintage, and I have vivid memories of some classic international rugby league encounters, particularly of the Great Britain v Australian kangaroos variety. My memory is vague and I'm sure unreliable, but I do recall those games, you know the 92 World Cup final, the 94 kangaroo tour, I remember those games being big freaking deals. I remember hungrily checking the TV guide and bemoaning that the games generally started around midnight Sydney time. I'd ask my dad if I could stay up. The negotiated outcome was generally that I could watch the first half, which sounded fine at the time, but I'd always regret not pushing harder when I'd wake to the news of the drama, the excitement, and often the most unbelievable last-minute match-winning tries from the Kangaroos. So when I heard that 2019 would herald the return of the Great Britain Rugby League Lions after a 12-year hiatus, I was darn excited. Sure, they weren't playing the Kangaroos, but I was salivating all the same. This tour was going to kickstart the Lions concept and bring back the glory days. My glasses were tinted rose. But I'm sure I wouldn't be alone in reflecting that it didn't really go the way I thought it would. The games themselves were tough, but the Lions just didn't quite have that presence I expected. Had time passed the Lions concept by? Was it just a poor run of form at the wrong time? Or was I the victim of that dastardly nostalgia trap? These questions have been lingering in my brain for nigh on 12 months, and I've been at an internal impasse as to the answers. But luckily for me, a new documentary has just been released that has given me a chance to consider it all afresh. Once for Lions takes us behind the scenes of the return of the Great Britain Rugby League Lions as they take on the might of Tonga, New Zealand, and a rapidly improving Papua New Guinea. We're on the team bus. We're in the dressing room with Wayne Bennett dropping F-bombs. We're running the water with Danny Ward dropping C-bombs. No holds are barred. And being International Rugby League, you wouldn't expect anything less. But of course, Once for Lions is not just a rehash of on-field endeavours. The story of the tour is the thread that illuminates the perennial rugby league issues of class, place, pride and, well, relevance that are as pertinent today as they've ever been. Tom Magnus is the director of Once for Lions and he's kindly agreeing to join us on the pod to give us the behind-the-scenes down low. Tom, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Johnny. Tom, thanks for taking the time and congratulations on a, a really splendid film. First up, could you give us an idea of how all this came about and, and why did you think this would make an interesting documentary? Well, I think your intro just then actually um, kind of summed up a lot of the reasons why we were so interested in the story. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia for that Lions team back in the you know 70s, 80s, 90s and mm. early 2000s and there were some great players who played and I think it was in hiatus for 12 years, the Lions brand and... We just thought that it was a great you know, opportunity to make a film about something that was coming back and also touching on wider issues, like you mentioned. It wasn't actually my idea to make it. It was one of our exec producers who you know, was a passionate rugby league fan and was you know, desperate to make a film. And it, it was, to be honest, all quite last minute because no one was interested in, in terms of TV channels over here. And so, you know, we kind of took a punt on it. It was two companies, the company I work for, Ad Hoc Films, and another company called Chalkboard, where Mike Benson, the exec, was from. 
So we, we kind of did it, you know, self-funded and just thought, look, let's see what happens. I think we can make a great film here. We believed in, in the idea. We believed in, you know, the fact that rugby league, I don't want to say it's a forgotten sport over here because it's still immensely popular in, in certain areas of mm. the country, mainly up north in, in Lancashire and Yorkshire. Mm. But it's probably a sport that has maybe fallen behind a bit in terms of the popularity of say football or, or rugby union or even cricket over here mm. and we just you know wanted to explore maybe a little bit about why that was and it felt like a lion's tour being in and amongst the kind of best of the best was a great place to start mm. yeah we'll get to, to more about that in a second but what was your agreement with the team about access about when and how you could film and and if and when you had to leave them alone well the RFL were very, you know, very pro us doing it. I think, you know, felt that obviously there's not been many documentaries about rugby league, certainly in this country, in, in England. So, you know, they, they wanted us to kind of have warts and all very much, no holes barred, follow the team. And they, they were very open with us. I think that on the whole, it was pretty much we could film where we wanted, but mm. there were certain things that we, we probably had to stay away from a bit. Some of the team meetings... We weren't privy to, just because I think Wayne Bennett's quite sort of cautious about letting people in to, to film kind of tactical meetings. But then again, it wasn't really something we were interested in particularly in, in the sense that I think we weren't making a film about the inner workings of, you know, tactical rugby league. Mm. So that was fine. And, you know, and just being completely honest, Wayne himself was very open to us doing it and felt that it was a good idea but wanted it to be very much focused on the players, didn't particularly sure. want to be a central figure in it. So that was kind of, I guess, the agreement. But we very much got brilliant access and we're very happy with, with what we were able to film. You mentioned Wayne Bennett there. So while he's not a focus of the film, the film does give an interesting glimpse into how Wayne Bennett operates on the, the training paddock and in the sheds. I mean, I've watched Wayne Bennett teams for decades, but I guess I never really had seen him this close and it was interesting to see, and to be honest, it was pretty startling, like the time where he essentially bans Josh Hodgson from ever kicking again. Uh, that was pretty funny. How was the, the real Wayne Bennett compared to the Wayne Bennett of your imagination? I think, I think it was kind of quite similar in a way. I, I, I didn't know a huge amount about him, if I'm being brutally mm. honest. I, just, I read a book he'd written on the way over, on the flight over, and I think... It definitely made me think, wow, this guy is, is a real thinker. He's an interesting character, and he's he's got a huge and very impressive history behind him. Kind of one of the first involvements I saw of him is that the team were having their, their photo done, and every player had to pose for a headshot, and the photographer was this Kiwi guy sort of taking about 20 photos of each player, you know, posing this way, posing that way. And, and Wayne Bennett stands up, comes to the front, and he goes... All right, mate, you've got one shot. That's it. <laughs> and the photographer's kind of like baffled, takes his shot, and he's like, Oh, I think it might be a bit out of focus. And Wayne Bennett's off. He's like, Sorry, mate, that was your chance. <laughs> so I was thinking, Wow, this guy doesn't mess about. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it was pretty close in terms of how it was. But the players, you know, hugely respect him. And you can mm. see when he talks, everyone's quiet. And. You can tell he's just a really pensive guy. I had a few conversations with him, not about rugby league. And, yeah. you know, he was telling me the history about Auckland one, mm. one time and clearly a very bright guy. And, and I, I would have loved to have kind of got a bit deeper with him, but, you know, I had to respect his boundaries. Sure. Now, Tom, as a documentary maker, I imagine you go into a project like this 
with at least an inkling of how it might turn out. How did that inkling compare to what resulted? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess, obviously, you're hoping for victories. There's no better thing to film if you're making a sports documentary than, you know, a changing room after a win, after a big win. Mm. And sadly, that didn't materialise. So, uh, I guess we hoped that, obviously, that, you know, this was going to... I think we set out thinking that this might reignite rugby league to some degree in, in England. Maybe that was the hope, naively, that mm. a successful tour would have really reignited interest in the Lions concept and obviously that didn't materialise so yeah it was it was deflating in a way because you you're living alongside these guys alongside mm. these players and you kind of feel the pain with them to some degree obviously not as, as much because you know you're not playing in the game but it was tough to kind of I guess see it unfold that way and, and mm. you felt a lot for the guys who you were getting to know yeah now, I do love the, the setup at the start of the film because it sets the scene and reminds the viewers of the, the heightened stakes. It wasn't just any tour. It felt like the future of the Great Bitten Lions concept depended on the success of the tour. This was a theme discussed in the media. It was intimated in motivational speeches by former players. It was palpable. Do you think the players felt the weight of the occasion and do you think it affected their on-field performance? I don't, I don't think so, actually. I think... I mean, maybe to a degree, but I, th- I think they were all so excited about this chance to put on a, a jersey that, you know, they'd seen worn by some of their heroes growing up. And mm. certainly that was exciting. But I don't think that was, I don't think that was the reason why it, all, why it didn't work out. I think, mm. let's face it, they faced the Tonga side who were brilliant and played out of their skin in the first game. Mm. And, you know, and it was still quite a close game. You know, there, there were no points on the board for like the first half an hour, I think. And mm. it wasn't a disgrace to lose that match. And I think the second game they played against New Zealand, you know, the first test against New Zealand was so close. And had that ball gone on, you know, over the line at the end, it could have been at least a draw, potentially a win for Great Britain. I, I just think after that, they were they were kind of on the back foot and, and it didn't work out. But I don't think it was the weight of the occasion. I just think for whatever reason, tough games long season and yeah. I, I don't think maybe it's just certain things just didn't go their way I, th- I honestly think that yeah and in terms of the the importance of the tour you mentioned it could have brought the concept back as, as someone who lives in London is the the Great Britain Lions is that something that the mainstream sports fan would would understand a bit more and take a further interest in compared to a normal Super League season or game it's hard because everything's so geographical here. Like, you know, depends where you're from. You you kind of support the sport or the team that you kind of grew up with. And so for me, it was very much, I had an interest in, in football and the local team I support. And rugby union was, was more prevalent in the, in the kind of areas of the country where I lived growing up as a kid. So I don't know. I mean, I think people in England and Scotland, Wales, Ireland take a lot more interest in in international sport than they do club sport on the whole. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's an argument for, to say that that would work. I think something that whilst making the film became quite clear to me was that for, for a Lions concept to work, you do need not just English players in the team. You, you do need Scots, Welsh, Irish, because mm. you know that's why the Rugby Union Lions is so popular here, I think, because... You see, you see the Six Nations and all these teams battling it out, and there's a lot of rivalry. 
And then suddenly these players all come together and the best Irish, the best Welsh, the best English. And, you, and, and everyone's excited to see how they're going to perform together. Mm. And there's something quite bonding about it as well. It's almost like you, you feel kind of like you get behind each other and it, there's a real kind of togetherness feel. And, and I think the more I kind of learn about it and the further I got along with making the film, realised that that was kind of probably the issue really, mm. was that there was only only really one player who wasn't English in the in the squad and and for that reason it's quite hard for like you know everyone to be like oh this is something different this is something exciting Mm. you know what I mean yeah it was really interesting hearing the players speak with such passion about the pride they had in representing the working class in the north of England and it was like really stirring to hear but I guess at the same time and I think it's something Brian Carney refers to in the film it kind of reflects the the hollowness of the great British Lions in the current reality, you know, essentially an English team in a, in a different jersey. So, yeah, I suppose, like many, it felt like it didn't necessarily fill out uh, the Great Britain Lions concept. And, and you're kind of saying it felt like that close up as well? Yeah, I, I, not at the time, I don't think. Yeah, it probably did a bit. I was kind of wondering. There was a lot of questions, you know, in the media, press conferences about sort of Great Britain. And a lot of the players were kind of getting confused a bit with you know, the fact with England or they mm. say, oh, well, we played New Zealand before, mm. you know, and we won or whatever. And it's like, it's obviously that you play New Zealand as England, not yeah. as Great Britain. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which wouldn't be the case had there been more other home nations players in it. But I mean, yeah, we, we touch upon it in the film and explore that and maybe hint at where the game needs to go over here in order to make it work. And I do think if there were even just two Scottish players, two Welsh, two Irish in that setup. It would be a different ball game, and I don't think that's that hard to achieve. You know, just maybe five years down the line, that could be a possibility, and and I think it would be a much more worthwhile endeavour doing mm. another Lions tour. I really hope it happens again. I think it's got a lot of potential. It just didn't work this time, and I think it was just too soon to bring it back. Yeah, I imagine when the doco was agreed to by the Lions hierarchy that they wouldn't have imagined a tour featuring nothing but disappointing losses. Did the on-field results, the, the four straight losses, did it make your job more difficult? Because I, I imagine it would have been a much more straightforward job rocking up with a camera into a winning dressing room. Absolutely. Um, that's definitely the right thing to be thinking. I mean, I felt I felt nervous that it would, after that first defeat, would kind of dampen our access to some degree. But it, it actually, it didn't really. And I think... Mm. I think in my head I was thinking, oh, I feel a bit, I don't know if I want to push this or I don't know if I want to walk into this room or whatever, but you just kind of got on with it. And actually, I think the more we were around, the more the players were, you know, they were fine with us being there. Mm. I, you know, on the whole, I think most of them were quite happy with us being there. And I think, I don't know, I don't think it did affect things, but obviously there's a kind of preconception in your mind that it might. And certainly after the second game, I did feel that, but actually we were so kind of, I don't want to say we were so embedded, but we everyone was quite used to us by then, mm. and I think we, we actually got some really nice stuff in those last two weeks, you know, some, some of the best stuff in the film, I feel, especially the trip to Papua New Guinea, I think we got some amazing footage there, yeah. and that was an incredible experience. Yeah, okay, we'll get to PNG shortly. Now, how did the group handle the, the mounting losses? Could you feel the squad's confidence start seeping away? Were there changes you noticed in the players as the results started falling the wrong way? Um, I'll be honest, I was always quite 
amazed by how little of that I saw. It felt like a really together group and they always seemed to have confidence that they could come back from it. Mm. You know, certainly after the first game and, and even the second game, I think morale was, was weirdly quite high because I thought, you know, if I was in that situation, I'd probably be thinking I quite want to go home now. I think by the fourth game against Papua New Guinea, yeah, maybe people were a bit broken and I think that's kind of evident by the performance. Although, I have to say, Papua New Guinea played out of their skin and mm. again, I just think everyone stepped up. I don't know if it's a if it's just a thing about, you know, wearing that Great Britain Lions jersey that people just want to perform against you. What You know, they want to get that scalp. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I don't know. But I don't think I saw people drop. I mean, James Graham was you know, the captain who, who features quite heavily in the film mm. and, and is such an interesting character and a real deep thinker. I was really impressed by him. He gave us an interview, I think it was just before that third match, and it was such an insightful, interesting interview. And mm. I just thought, he didn't have to do that, you know. He didn't have to. He could have said, sorry, lads, I just I want to focus on the game. But he gave mm. us an interview the day before, and it was one of the spines of the documentary, really, I think. Yeah. yeah well, so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that. Yeah, well, let's talk about James Graham. Obviously, he was the captain of the of the tour, and it was a tough tour. And in an unfortunate turn, he gets knocked out in the final game against PNG. Can you just flesh out a bit more about James Graham as a person, a teammate, and a leader? Obviously, he's had a, a wonderful career, but were you able to glimpse what made him the enduring success he was on the rugby league field? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think he's... Like I said before with Wayne Bennett, he's one of those people, James Graham, who when he talks, people listen. And I think he's incredibly intelligent and like really thoughtful. I didn't mean to sort of seem like I had stereotypes, but you think that someone who kind of essentially runs into a brick wall every day and <laughs> mm. beats people up in a, in a rugby game maybe wouldn't be so sort of deep. I sat next to him on a bus actually on one of the trips from Auckland to Hamilton and had a really good long conversation with him and liked him immensely and you know he says in the film that he's a child of seven and mm. his dad put a lot of focus into his rugby league career and I think he feels the pressure of that mm-hmm. weighing on his shoulders so I think that's maybe one of the reasons why he he has so much determination and yeah he was he was just a, a thoughtful tough guy really yeah. and it was a shame it was so sad to see him get knocked out in that final game because you know, he just wants to be on the field the whole time. And I think commands a huge amount of respect and will be sorely missed in international rugby league. Mm. Yeah, and, and his comments to Cameron near the end about concussion were quite interesting too, where he basically said, you know, I, I know there are risks to my long-term health and I'm okay with that. And that's a, an interesting one in the context of the debate that's going on around head injuries. You know, yes, everyone knows a, a big concussion or repeated concussions are bad news, but there's also grey areas around the the effects of what may be considered more minor knocks. So I guess I guess James's comments may well be what it comes to in the end with players, you know, having to sign documents saying, I understand playing rugby league or rugby union or gridiron or AFL or soccer or whatever. It may give me brain damage and I'm okay with that or I understand that. It was interesting. Yeah, it was powerful that, you know, and I think kind of sums him up and, I guess sums up the mentality you need to play such a tough sport I mean I really do think it is the toughest team sport out there you know from what I can see you have to be wired up and he says this actually you have to be wired up differently and I think that's that's kind of what it comes down to yeah all right well let's get back to the mechanics of making this kind of film so the game day footage is fantastic plenty of behind the scenes 
sound and vision from the dressing room, the sidelines, etc. Can you give us an overview of your game day setup? Were there a few cameras yeah. stationed at different parts of the ground? How did you go about all that? Uh, yeah, sure. It's quite interesting, these questions. Are you, are you a filmmaker yourself or have you worked in this world? No, no, I'm not a filmmaker at all no. and, uh, and never worked in the world, but yeah, interested in film, I suppose. Nice, for sure. Well, there was, there was two of us on the tour, myself and camera guy called Lloyd Purnell, who I've worked with a lot. And the setup generally was that I would take the changing room and he would be on the sideline with the coaches. And, you know, Danny Ward was, was mic'd up a lot. And mm. he was sort of focusing on, on the kind of bench and the coaches and, and, and a bit of the action on field. And I would be in the changing room and I'd come out once the players left and sort of roam around the ground and try and get a bit of the you know, feeling for the crowd and some wide shots of the, of the on-field action. And, and we were very privileged to be able to use the broadcast footage as well. So I think with those sort of three elements involved, it makes for good viewing. It's not like we were kind of Amazon documentary production where you've got 15, 20 mm. cameras roaming around. But I think you have to just work fast and work hard and just yeah. continually roll, really. So that's, I guess, how it worked. And at the end of the game, I'd be back in the dressing room and he'd be sort of cleaning up a few shots outside. That's basically how it works. Yeah, no, fascinating. Now, um, yeah. what, one of my favourite parts of the doco is when the team take a trip to Hamilton to Turangawaiwai Marai in Narawaia, the official residence of the Māori king Tuitia Paki. And it's quite the occasion. The team is promised a traditional welcome and in return is asked to organise a group song for their hosts, I guess as a returning gift and mark of respect. Now, the song chosen was, well, a, a curious one, Eddie Money's Two Tickets to Paradise. Explain that one to me. <laughs> Very good pronunciation, by the way, of the uh, Mary King's residence. I did practice that uh, one a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know. I mean, I, it's an extraordinary moment and it's great that we got that on film because it's definitely a, quite lighthearted and, and entertaining. I remember talking to James Graham about where the song came from and I think there was a, a history of them singing it in the England dressing room after a couple of games. Right. I believe that was where it kind of originated from. I'd never actually heard the song before, but it's um, a sort of soft rock classic, shall we say. <laughs> I, think it, I think they just... They were practicing on a bus and the singing was pretty awful. And I just thought, all right, I think we're going to be in for quite a treat here. <laughs> Turn up at the Maori King's residence. And I think they realized pretty quickly that maybe it was the wrong choice for that occasion. And um, yeah, I, I don't want to ruin what, what happens, but it, it was definitely uh, an entertaining moment for sure. There's quite a good thing that actually happened just um, from the filmmaking perspective on that. It was quite early on in the tour mm. and I think we were still kind of getting to know people and I was filming to the side and Lloyd, the other camera man, was filming behind the players. Mm. The Maori tribes people had sung their song back and it was amazing to the Lions and there was this kind of quite deep moment of pause and thoughts and Lloyd was trying a camera move from, I don't know, high to low kind of move behind mm. him and went to sit on a bench, sort of went from standing to sitting on a bench, but there was no bench behind him, so he ended up just falling on the floor and stacking it. <laughs> and all the players were just like, just turned around and just erupted laughing, they just couldn't control it. And from then on, it was just, 
you know, the amount of stick that we'd both get, actually. It was, all, all right, lads, are you, you're going to fall over today? You know, <laughs> careful getting on the bus, that kind of thing. And it was it was quite a good sort of ice-breaking moment, yeah. I think, with us and the team. So that was another event that, that happened that isn't in the film, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was an entertaining day for sure. Yeah, I mean they did a pretty good job in the end. Two tickets to paradise. I'd originally heard it from The Simpsons, actually, where Homer Simpson sings it. Yeah, in one of those episodes oh. from about twenty years ago. That's my memory of that song. Oh wow, I didn't know that. That's brilliant. I've got two tickets to paradise. I've got two tickets to paradise. Now, um, Tom, the, the film focuses on a, a few players, including Jermaine McGilvray, who comes across as a, a really interesting character who thinks deeply about where he's come from and his place in the game. And it's it's a tough tour for Jermaine. He seems to be struggling at times, being away from his kids. And then he's in the unfortunate situation of having the ball knocked out of his hands as he's about to score a potentially match-winning try in their first match against New Zealand. Can I get you to reflect on Jermaine? How did he handle the tour? And what you learned about the experience of a touring player when things aren't going great? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, he's such a nice guy, Jermaine, and I was privileged to be able to film with him a little bit before they left on, on the tour and, you know, get a bit of an insight into his past. And, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing story. You know, guy was working in, in a sort of hardware shop and until his, I think, his sort of late teens or early 20s and, and just rose very rapidly to being one of the one of the best wingers in, in world rugby league. I think he had a really he actually had a really good first two games. You know, the game against Tonga, he was one of mm. the Lions' best players, and again against New Zealand in that game you're talking about, he was he was brilliant and he was defensively awesome and made a lot of great carries. And he says it in the film, you know, he's the worst player in the world because of one mistake. Mm. You know, people just forget about all the good things that he'd done. And I think it was it was horrible to see like what it did to him in that moment and how he felt and the emotion he felt. And, but at the same time, it's, I think it was, it's obviously very interesting from a filmmaker's point of view and I guess for an audience to see just the amount of pressure and what something like that can do to a person in that moment. But, you know, he, he came back from it and he played in all the games, you know, on tour. Mm. And, and I think he's a very resilient character. It was obviously just a really tough moment for him. And there's a moment in the film where I'm filming him in the change room after that game and I won't say what happens but he sort of essentially tells me where to go <laughs> and I think it kind of captured the raw emotion that was going through his mind and I, I felt bad that I was just doing my job but I, I felt bad that that situation arose but after the game we chatted and he was incredibly nice about it and mm. you know, apologetic as was I so yeah, it was. It's interesting, but you've got to explore these things in a documentary about a sport. Yeah. Now, after a few weeks in New Zealand, it seemed the trip to Papua New Guinea came at a good time. Perhaps not from a planning perspective, as the injuries mounted, but for the team spirit. What was that experience like? Did it refresh the group, or by this point were they just ready to go home? I think it did. I think you're right. It definitely refreshed the group. I think they absolutely loved it, and. I don't think anyone was quite prepared for it. A couple of the players had been to Papua New Guinea before, but on the whole, the majority of the group had never been and had just heard the stories. And 
I think it was a really enlightening experience, and I hope that comes across on on camera mm. with with what we captured and, and the players reacting to it. But yeah, no, it's it's an amazing place. I, I wasn't prepared for it either. You know, it's the number one sport there. I, I didn't even know that rugby league was the number one sport there or, or played there really mm-hmm. much at all. The passion you see for it, people are just playing. You know, in the streets, on the side of the, the highway, men, women, children. You know, everyone they're playing with plastic bottles instead of a rugby ball it was crazy I've never seen anything like it I mean the only thing I could compare it to is if you've ever been to India and you see the amount of cricket you see played in the streets there it was like that mm. and obviously the the atmosphere on game day was just incredible and you've kind of gone from these half empty stadiums in, in New Zealand to just packed out just roaring crowd like, you know, it will stay with me forever that and I think it will stay with all the players I'm sure Mm. forever I think everyone just loved that experience yeah and despite I suppose that was their heaviest loss in the end of that tour (laughs) but even so still an amazing experience that I'm sure they will look back upon positively I hope so yeah I think that maybe not the game itself but I think the build up to it and they were able to go and visit schools and we didn't actually put this bit in the film. We, it kind of got cut out towards the end of the kind of editing of the film. But they went to the village where um, Kato Otio, I never, mm, uh, mm. he played for Canberra, I believe. Is that the, the man who passed away recently? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. And quite a few of the guys like Josh Hodgson and Elliot Whitehead had played with him. And it was very emotional. And, you know, they met his mum and right. they went to his house and there was like a shrine to Kato in the house and it was a really powerful scene I mean, it's just a shame we kind of had to you know we ended up cutting it out I think mm. it would be one of the DVD extras but you know it was an amazing village and everyone there was so welcoming and so happy to see the players and you know I think they got a lot out of that I know I certainly did yeah fascinating now Tom this isn't your first sporting documentary you've made others including a couple of boxing docos how did the experience of shooting this film compare with previous experiences what was similar and what was different i think the the difference is you know when you're filming a boxer you tend to be just focusing on the boxer and key members of his team you know his trainer and maybe his wife or you know you know it's a much clearer kind of character narrative with this i didn't know a huge amount about rugby league going into it i probably still don't know a huge amount about rugby league but you know i've learned a bit but going into it you're you're just not quite sure, like, who do I follow? Who, you know, I think this person seems interesting. I think that, you know, you don't know how they're going to perform in games. It's, it's, if there's only two of you, it's hard to kind of get the coverage and get around everyone, as it were, and you know what I mean, and, and quite figure out how to focus on who to focus on and when. You just have to kind of go for it. So it's, it's much harder in that respect. It was much harder making this Lions film. But... I mean, the similarity has got to be just, you know, the nature of sport, success and loss. And I've been in changing rooms, you know, with boxers when they've lost. And, you know, I've I've felt that feeling before. And and I guess that was probably the most similar thing about it. Yeah. Now, Tom, we're we're running out of time, but a couple more, if I may. The reflections of the tour from the outside have been that the tour was a disaster. Of course, it essentially cost Wayne Bennett his job. Is that description of disaster, is that fair as someone who saw it all unfold from a a human, not just on-field perspective? I don't know. I mean, it's easy to say that for sure, but I I do think that there's a couple of things in the film which really resonate with me. Tony Collins, who's the historian, he's a a very well-thought-of historian over here. Yeah, we know him well. 
he talks about the fact that when he was growing up, you wouldn't have been able to, you know, there's only four teams playing the sport, France, New Zealand, Australia and Great Britain. You know, the idea that a Tonga team or a team from Papua New Guinea could play against the Lions or even, you know, defeat them was in the realms of fantasy. And now it's, it's a real possibility. So if you look at it from that respect, you know, world rugby has, has massively evolved and is, is continuing to evolve. And that's exciting. I think also that the guys who went on that tour, like it would have been a great experience for them. And I think you probably learn a lot of a lot of lessons from defeat. And I imagine a, a lot of them will come back stronger and will, will come back in whatever the next competition they play in, be it Super League or be it the World Cup, hopefully that happens next year, will come back with that fresh in their mind and will have learned a lot and will come back stronger. So mm. I don't think it was a complete disaster, to be honest, but you could argue for it for sure. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Tony Collins there. One of my favourite quotes from the film comes from the great man Tony Collins who says, Rugby League has become a metaphor for the state of the north of England. And you drop that quote at an opportune time in the film just after the Lions, I think, have lost their first couple of games. And as a viewer who knows what's coming next in terms of results, it's it's a powerful and, and kind of depressing line, I suppose. And well, on the same note, it was interesting to listen to the players speak with such passion of how they felt about the the fans that they were representing and, and their working class constituency that they were representing. Can I get you to reflect on, on that relationship and how that kind of manifested throughout the tour? Yeah, I just think it was, it was so fascinating talking to all these guys, who, most of whom have grown up in working class towns, I guess, around sort of Yorkshire and Lancashire and places which have deep roots to heavy industry which England's been very much deindustrialized, sort of in the sort of 50s 60s 70s 80s and a lot of these towns have suffered as a result and, you know, it's not to say that they're completely suffering it's just you know it's definitely had an effect and I think rugby league is something which has been constant and it's to these places and back in the day a lot of these guys would have worked in the mines or textile factories and they'd have gone from working to playing for their rugby league team and I think all going to support the, the local rugby league team and I think that's something that's, that's just remained the rugby league teams and something that people feel a hugely close identity to it's, it's massively part of their DNA and it was just something that was really interesting as we went along everyone just felt that way and there's a real deep connection I think that comes across hopefully in the film yeah absolutely now, before we finish up, what's the plan for the film, Tom? It's currently on BBC iPlayer. Are there plans to circulate more widely, including to an international audience? Yes, absolutely. There is certainly Australia and New Zealand, and I think America. I'm not sure exactly when. It's not really my remit to have those negotiations, but I know that's definitely on the cards. So, you know, watch this space. We're also hoping to make a follow-up around the World Cup, which is in England in 2021. Fabulous. And hoping to follow the England team. And I think, you know, BBC have shown some interest and I hope that comes to fruition. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Tom, we're officially out of time. Congratulations on a fabulously insightful documentary. You've done a great job at capturing what we love about rugby league while going deeper in some of the live issues that the UK game continues to face. So kudos, Tom. Good luck in the future and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Progressive Rugby League. A darn good film. 
Rugby League docos are just heavenly for me, as I know they are for you guys. Alrighty, that's it for this episode. Hope you're keeping well. Feel free to get in touch with your thoughts via Twitter or progressiverl at outlook.com. Until we next meet, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya.